The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 107.7 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots going on in technology. I'm going to talk about using game theory to try to find extra life out there in the universe. Mm, Many people creepy. think something's out there, but we're just not locating it. Uh, also, AI has uh, been made remarkable progress on calculating how proteins fold. This is a huge problem that is actually going to help us create uh, medical breakthroughs in the future. And AI is being used for all kinds of things. We're now seeing an accelerated pace uh, in the deployment of big AI systems. I'll get to some of those, probably not to all of them. And of course, we've got an exodus from Silicon Valley. Now we've got Tesla, HP, and Oracle are all moving to Texas. This week, we're featuring Jeffrey Agate Dean. Jeffrey Adgate Dean. He is the programmer behind Google's scalable architecture. He's also the man who is currently running the Google AI initiatives, and he is a Google rock star. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Paul in Minneapolis. Dear Tech Talk, I'm a little confused. I had Carbonite backing up my files for a couple years, and they didn't back up any of my Windows files. I learned the hard way the day after my hard drive crashed. I couldn't reinstall Windows. I had to reinstall all of the applications individually, and I had to figure out what my license numbers were. What exactly is backed up when you create a system image file? That may be more what I need. Paula in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, uh, Paula, when you create a system image file, you are effectively backing up your entire hard drive. Everything you stored on the drive will be saved as a backup, uh, as, a, as, as a backup set on your hard drive. And this does include your Windows applications and all of the applications that you other applications that you have installed on your computer. When you create a system image backup, you're basically taking a snapshot of the contents of the drive. And you can use that backup at a later date to recreate the entire configuration if you have a hard drive failure. Therefore, if you would have had a system image backup on hand, you would have been able to back up your PC and get it running with all your programs and settings immediately. Uh, Carbonite does have an option for a system backup. Uh, most people just do the file backup because it 
takes longer, but you do have that option. You also have an option to do a system backup to an external hard drive. So I would recommend you do that. Uh, it certainly makes it nice if you have a full hard drive failure. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. How will Cloudflare and Apple improve internet security? It has something to do with DNS and, and uh, iPad addresses. Anything to improve internet security would be helpful. Tech Talk is great to keep everyone informed. Many thanks, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, it's really not iPad addresses, but it is IP addresses. And uh, let me explain what they're doing. It turns out that engineers at Apple are working with Cloudflare and Fastly to create the Oblivion DNS system. Now, that's a new standard that will make it harder to track users' online activity. Now, the domain name system is effectively an address book on the internet. So if you want to go to someplace, you send the, the domain name, like stratford.edu, to the domain name server, and it sends back the IP address, which is, which is basically um, a series of zeros and ones. And if you're IP6, it's 128 zeros and ones. If you're IPv4, it's 32 uh, zeros and ones. Now, people can track that because that information is set in clear text. Your request is sent in clear text. The address is sent back in clear text. And so they've been trying to find a way to allow people to interact with the domain name system in a secure way. Now, one group of engineers started uh, using uh, a technique where they would have an encrypted data stream between you and the domain name server. And that was DNS over HTTPS. Now, that was set up... Uh, that was set up quite uh, quite a while ago, and HDNS over HTTPS is currently actively in use. However, if the same company, if a company has access to the DNS, suppose they're running a DNS server, uh, when your encrypted information gets to the DNS server, it's unencrypted, so they can so they can actually answer the query. That means the company that controls the DNS server knows actually where you're trying to go, and they know your IP address, so you do not have security from their eavesdropping. You've only protected yourself from other people eavesdropping. So they're trying to find a way to give you better security, and they're combining it with a proxy server. Okay? So what happens is that you will, they will make an, an encrypted request to the HTTPS DNS server. So that request will be encrypted, but they will send it to a proxy server. Then the proxy server on their behalf will send it to the DNS server. The DNS server sends back the information back to the proxy server, and then from the proxy server back to your computer. Now, for this system to provide full security, one company has to control the proxy server and another company has to control the encrypted DNS server. And if they never collude, which is part of the standard, then nobody knows both your IP address as well as what you've requested. So that's what they're trying to set up now, that system. Now, it's not a standard yet, actually. But they're, it, they're going to submit this standard to the Internet Engineering Task Force, and once IETF accepts it, 
It will become a de facto standard for the Internet, and that will be, in fact, a real improvement in uh, you know anonymous surfing around the web. So I think it's a I think it's a good development, and and it will help us maintain our security and our anonymity as we surf around the web. We got an email from Jane in Washington D.C. Dear Dr. Shirts, Jim, and Mr. Big Voice, I listen every time I get a chance and really enjoy the history of technology. However, back at the desktop on my nice HP Envy Windows 10 system, I have McAvee running, and Bing, the Bing server, sneaks up all the time. Now, I'm using Chrome, and, I, and because I like to do anonymous serving, I'm using DuckDuckGo. That's, a, that's another, um, another search engine that doesn't store or sell your information like Google does. Uh, but in my Chrome server, Bing keeps popping up. Every time I go there, Bing is there. Bing wants to have me do the search. Bing, I can't get rid of Bing. Uh, and I like just Bing to go away because I, I want to use DuckDuckGo. I got another problem with my Chrome browser. I might be... Uh, you know, surfing around on the web and open up a few tabs. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I can't, I'd like to reclaim one of the tabs or one of the searches I did previously, one of the tabs that was open, but they've just disappeared on Chrome and I, I can't seem to find them. I know Chrome's got them somewhere, but I can't find them. So how can you help me solve these two problems? Well, first of all, to get rid of Bing, you've, you've got to configure your Chrome browser not to include Bing at any of the any of the things that it does, because you your homepage could be set up for Bing, your default search engine could be set up for Bing. Anytime you open a new tab, it could go to Bing, and and what happens is Bing likes to embed itself everywhere. So chances are Bing has set up all those things to its favor. So what you want to do? Open up your Chrome browser, and up in the right hand corner, you got three dots. Click on those three dots, and it opens up a menu. Then click settings. Now, step two, go to the appearance section of the, of the uh, settings uh, pop-up window and click the show home button to see if it's enabled. And, uh, and, if, there's, uh, and if the home button is enabled, uh, check to see whether Bing is set at the home page. If it is, delete that Bing web address and choose... <clears throat> a new homepage that would you, you would like. You could choose Google as your own, or you could say you could choose a homepage of DuckDuckGo if you want it, or you could choose a homepage of your own personal homepage. Now, step three, you want to change the search engine. <clears throat> so in the search engine section, click on that, and there will be, an, uh, be, a, there will be a little drop-down menu. Look at the drop-down menu and see whether Bing is selected as a search engine. Uh, <clears throat> what you want to do is DuckDuckGo will be in that list, by the way. So you just you can click DuckDuckGo uh, quite easily, and then DuckDuckGo will be your default search engine. Then to make certain that Bing doesn't show up again, you can delete Bing from that option. So what you want to do, you click on the uh, <clears throat> you can basically click on Manage Search Engines. Uh, Okay, that's that's a choice there, right under the search engines. You click on Manage Search Engines, and then you'll see a list of all the available search engines. When you click, you'll see Bing there, and there are three dots to the right of Bing. You can click on those three dots, and you'll have one choice, Remove from this list. So you can remove Bing from the list, so it can't come up automatically. So 
If you go through all of those steps, Bing is not going to keep coming back to you when you use Chrome. Now, as far as those pesky tabs that seem to disappear, you can easily restore the list of tabs at the top using a keystroke shortcut. Control, Shift, T. T stands for tab. So you hold down Control, Shift, T, those three buttons all at the same time, and all the tabs, your most recent tabs, will show up across the top of the screen. And sometimes they disappear, and because it just wants to save screen space, you hit Control, Shift, T, tabs will reappear. Now, you might want to look up a tab that maybe that you'd done three days ago. So in that case, you need to look at history, because history is going to have a whole list of all your prior websites. So what you want to do, you again, click on the three vertical top dots at the top of the right top of the window. And then in this state, you'll click on history and you'll see a whole list of recently, of recently visited websites. And you can click on the one you want to reopen. And that way you should be able to reclaim all of your previous browser history. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the irreplaceable Mr. Big Voice. Oh, he can be replaced. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Very you keep easily. telling him that. <laughs> I Usually have been reading time of something the year about BGP hijacking. What is it? Thanks. Love the show. As always, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, there's a lot of really good things going on with BGP protocol to make it more secure. And this is really good for the internet. So I'm going to have to go into some of the internet architecture to explain this. I'm going to try to make it not too complicated. BGP stands for Border Gateway Protocol. It's the protocol that networks use to communicate each, with each other. And they advertise routes. <clears throat> and basically, they advertise routes. Uh, routers will consolidate all those routes into a routing table. And they'll decide what is the optimum route if they want to route a package, say, from, from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, they'll decide that, well, the optimum route is going to be to go through Dallas and then Boulder and then San Francisco. And so it, so these routing tables are used to route, route information. Now, BGP, the protocol, was developed when the Internet was just an infant. And at that time, they had the idea that everybody who was on the Internet was trustworthy, and that you didn't really have to verify anything. And if one of these network providers provided routing information, well, you trust it because they were trustworthy. It turns out that is unfortunately no longer the case. Like if an internet <clears throat> provider advertises a bad route, they could send your data through some sort of really bad uh, path, and it may go nowhere. It could just go to oblivion and never and never arrive where it should. But more dangerously, they could advertise a route that would route your data through unscrupulous servers that would sniff out the information. So for instance, there were, uh, China was advertising BGP routes and were routing traffic through Chinese servers and they were using it for espionage purposes. So, and when you advertise a bad route and you reroute traffic through a server uh, that's called bgp hijacking now in order to solve the problem you have to build in security and that's what the current action is there's a group of 600 companies and it's called the 
<laughs> mutually agreed norms for routing security. Uh, these guys have to get a better name. That's easy mutually, to remember. That's, isn't that terrible, Jim? Awful. Mutually agreed norms for internet routing. It's 600-member task force. It spells, the acronym will be MANNER. Yeah, and MANNERS. MANNERS. <laughs> MANNERS, that's right. Okay, now this group is using routing public key infrastructure. In other words, <clears throat> a route is going to be verified just just like you you know when you do a, when you do a secure transfers over the web with public private key infrastructure it's going to be the same thing and so it's going to be once somebody has sent out a verified route somebody can't change that route they can't edit that route it has to be whatever they've advertised that's what it is and so if all of the uh, players who had uh, BGP routers that use BGP protocol, if they all insisted that all routes had to had to basically go through the routing public key infrastructure, you would not have the possibility of bad routes being advertised. Now, this has really gained real momentum over the last two years. It's now it's now in use by internet service providers like AT&T, Telia, NT&T, Koja, RETN in Europe. And so it's more and more to follow. Now, the problem is it's voluntary whether you follow this or not. Now, the hope is, is that if we could get the majority of uh, networks to use it, they could flip the switch where they would only accept that uh, verified routes and those Few networks that refused to do it would be cut off from the internet unless they, unless they followed suit. And so I think that will happen probably within the next two or three years, and then we'll have an even more secure internet. Oh, we got another email uh, from Bob. Dear uh, Mr. Big Voice, Doc and Jim. Top I billing just for Mr. Big Voice. Look at that. Uh, Mr. Big. Oh, well, hold it. Dear Mr. Big Voice, Doc and Jim. Does Mr. What? Big Voice ever have an answer to any of these questions? No. No. And why is he given top billing on I don't this know. email? This is, a, this is a travesty. It is. It is. It is a problem. So Bob said, I just ran across an article on hard drive shucking. Now, and uh, now I've heard of shucking corn. Actually, <laughs> I've heard of shucking oysters. I, I shuck oysters and I, I shuck corn. But... This is something new to me. Is it, is it a good idea to save money uh, with this hard drive shucking? What do you think, Bob in Maryland? Okay, Bob, let me let me go through. Let me explain what this is a little bit. It turns out that manufacturers will often sell hard drives at a cheaper rate when they're packaged as external hard drives. Um, and I'll explain why they do this. For instance, <clears throat> I went online to Newegg. And I could get a 14 terabyte Western Digital UltraStar internal hard drive. That, 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 that's a top tier hard drive. 14 I was terabytes. Say, that $350. Really good. Okay. What do you think of that, Jim? Uh, uh, I'd pay $350 for that. For a 14 terabyte. On, now, on your recommendation. Now, here's the thing they also have an external hard drive with a USB that you plug in, a USB external hard drive. Western Digital, 14 terabytes. It's only $190. And that's $160 savings. And if you take out the hard drive from that external hard drive, it'll be the same one as that internal hard drive. Hmm. Now, so hard drive shucking is you find a, a price disparity like that. 
You buy the hard drive, you take it apart, take the hard drive out of it, and then you've got a bare hard drive, and then you install it in your computer. So you've shucked the hard drive out of the external hard drive. Now, it turns out it's fairly easy to, to, to disassemble an external hard drive without damaging anything. Western digital ones are the easiest. The whole process requires nothing but what they call a jimmy, which is like a blade for like spreading, uh, you know, stick it in, you can spread it to sort of force things out, and a Phillips screwdriver. Now, a jimmy actually, to me, looks a lot like an oyster shucking knife. <laughs> so I'm thinking if you're going to shuck a hard drive, you ought to use a shucking knife oh, instead no. of a jimmy. What no. do you think, Jim? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, and don't. You can, you, you can check out the YouTube videos if you want to see how this is done. Now, why do these companies do that, okay? That, that was my question. Why would you do this? Here's the thing. When you're manufacturing in high volume, hundreds of thousands of high-capacity hard drives, some of them are going to be super pristine and just perfect. There'll be other ones that do not perform quite as well, and they're sort of at the edge of the, uh, of the tolerance limit in the production system. So what they do, they take the pristine hard drives and they sell them to companies for enterprise servers. And that means the ones that are, say, seconds, uh, they, uh, they, they package them up as external hard drives and they sell them to the masses at discount. Now, the thing is that for just the average user, they're just plenty good. So for the average user is not going to be using a high, you know, uh, you know, using the using the hard drive in a very high demand way, and so they could easily uh, use that hard drive and get a very excellent hard drive at a good price. So it's like going to the factory and get and buying a second, and 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 maybe just the collar is a little bit off, but but the shirt looks really good. So <laughs> factory so it's, seconds. Yeah. It's, so. It's not actually a bad idea. Now, here's the thing. You want to get the three-and-a-half-inch hard drives. The 2.5-inch hard drives, or the laptop hard drives, those, those don't shuck very well because they, they tend to be glued in. So you want to get an external hard drive that's three-and-a-half inches if, if, you, if you want to have successful shucking of your hard drive. <laughs> oh, shucks. Oh, shucks. We got an email from Lois in Erie, Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, We've got two computers in our home office and only one USB printer. Is there a way to print from both computers without having to switch the print cable? Hmm. Love the podcast, Lois and Airy. Well, Lois, you are in luck. <laughs> There's a device called a USB printer auto switch that makes it easy to do. It detects when one computing, computer is sending a print job to the printer, and it automatically connects that computer to the printer. Now you go. The uh, I've got. Here's a very good recommendation for you. IO Gear, IO Gear two point two port, IO Gear two port USB automatic pr printer switch. It's only twenty eight dollars. IO Gear two port USB automatic printer switch. It's only twenty eight dollars and eighteen cents on Amazon. Listen, we love your emails. We do. Email us at Tech Talk at Stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FMHD2, 1039 FMHD2, now southwest of D.C. on 1077 FMHD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM.
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Jeffrey Adgate Dean. I mean, his middle name is interesting, Adgate. Because he actually uh, designed the architecture for Google delivering ads. Well, at least it wasn't Watergate. At least it wasn't <laughs> Watergate. Yeah, that is very true. So Jeff Dean is the programmer behind Google behind Google's scalable architecture. He is uh, he's a programming legend within Google, and he's treated as a rock star. Uh, recently, Google put him in charge of their AI initiative because that is coming front and center, and they want to accelerate the deployment of AI applications. Jeff Dean was born July 1986 in Hawaii. In 1981, he skipped the three, last three months of the eighth grade to help his parents at a refugee camp in Somalia. While in high school, he wrote software for analyzing Vast data sets of a pest, uh, let's see, epidemiological data. What do you think? How do you pronounce that? Epidemiological data. Epidemiological data. Thank you, Jim. I'm here to help. That's, I, I need that. You know, I've had too many cups of coffee. And he said it <laughs> Are you sure it's 26 just coffee? <laughs> times faster than what professionals were using at the time. He called the system EpiInfo, info, and it was adopted by the Center for Disease Control and it's been translated into 13 languages. This was his first attempt to use large data sets for an application. And while it was still in high school, and it's, it was actively used. I don't think he made any money on that. I think he just gave it away because he was wanted to meet the challenge. Uh, in 1990, he received a Bachelor of, Sci Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from the University of Minnesota. Then from 1990 to 1991, he worked for the World Health Organization, Global Program on AIDS. He developed statistical modeling and forecasting and analysis of the HIV pandemic. And I hope he was doing better modeling than they've been doing on our current pandemic. <laughs> yeah. 
But it's interesting that uh, that he was. You see what he he was already drawn to big data modeling back in the day. So then after he finished that project, he went uh, back to school, went to the uh, University of Washington, and he got a bachelor's, and rather got a master's of science in 1993 and a PhD in 1996. Both of them were in computer science. Now, while in graduate school, he invented several new techniques for optimizing object-oriented programming language. Many of the... Uh, Techniques that he invented have now been included in commercial C++ and in Java compilers. He was quite the compiler expert. But, you know, he, he, he was given a, um, uh, he, he worked as a graduate, uh, you know, graduate assistant after he got his degree. And, uh, and he was, you know, the compiler expert there at school. But he decided he didn't want to spend his whole life working working on compilers. So he decided to leave academia and go into the corporate world. In September 1996, he joined DEC Compact's Western Research Laboratory, where he worked on profiling tools, microprocessor architecture, and information retrieval. In February of 1999, he became a senior member of the technical staff at My Simon Incorporated, where he developed the system for retrieving and caching electronic commerce content, including crawling and customized full-text indexing system. He increased the speed of that system by 20x. Now, crawling is a very significant... So he was crawling over a huge database, gathering data, and indexing it. Guess what? what? That's exactly what Google does when they crawl over all the web pages on the web and they index it. So that experience was very appealing to Google. In August of 1999, he was hired by Google as an employee number 20. I mean, the people in the beginning uh, were the ones that really had a huge impact on Google. He was employee number 20 at Google. Now, he's currently a Google senior fellow in the systems infra infrastructure group. There are only within Google two senior fellows. And he's one of them. Now, these are the things that, that he worked on while he was there. He was co-designer and co-implementer of the five successive generations of Google, Google's crawling index and query retrieval systems. This is where they gather data on the web and they organize it so you can do quick searches. He was co-designer and implemented of the initial version of Google's advertising serving system. This is where they had to start making money. Mm -hmm. That's why that's why his AdGate is such a perfect name for him. He was co-designer and implementer of MapReduce. It's a system for large-scale data processing applications and large cluster machines. So the problem that Google had, their initial algorithm was not scalable. Machines were dying, you know, and, and they had to find a way to make their software independent of machine failure. So he developed a system where they would span the data across clusters, many clusters of machines. If one machine died or one hard drive died, the data would just move to another cluster or another hard drive and they would swap it out. And so they made the, he made a system that was very robust and scalable. And this was the first big thing that he did for Google to help them scale the system. The original system that uh, 
Sergey Brin and, uh, and company developed was not really scalable. And uh, he had, he, his goal was to make Google scalable. He was co-designer co -designer and implementer of Big Table. This is a large-scale, semi-structured storage system that is underneath of about 50 Google products. It's also a large-scale data system. So you've got MapReduce is a large-scale data processing application system for large clusters. Bigtable is a large-scale storage system. Both of these work together to have a scalable infrastructure for Google. He was co-designer and implementer for many aspects of the production system for Google Translate, which is a statistical machine for translation. I use Google Translate a lot. If I go to a country and they don't speak English, I use Google yeah. Translate, and it's and it lets me go in and you know, you know, buy something. I can they know what I'm talking about. Now he developed something that nobody thought was possible. He was co-designer and implementer of Spanner. Now this was a large-scale globally distributed storage system. So because Google has data warehouses all over the world, so. The database was so big it was stored across multiple locations around the world, and Spanner solved the problem of time synchronization uh, so that the data would always be synchronized. Many people thought it wasn't possible because if you say update data in Palo Alto and then you want to update uh, data there in Europe, there's going to be a slight time delay because it takes a, a little bit of time for the data to get to Europe, and he solved the timing problem. Uh, on these large-scale databases. He figured out a very clever way to solve that so all the data was always synchronized. He was co-designer and implementer of a system for large-scale distributed neural network training. Now, this is where we get into artificial intelligence. Okay, the neural networks, these are basically interconnected networks, and you adjust the synaptic values, the, the connection strength between the neurons as the system learns. And you've got massive, massive networks of these interconnected neurons, and you're exposing them to huge data sets. So this is a major scale issue. So he got involved not necessarily as a neural net theorist, but as a scalable systems architect. And uh, because of his work, they were able to make significant improvements in image understanding, in speech recognition, and in la natural language processing. And we've all felt these this impact. I mean, remember, it used to be speech recognition was terrible. Yeah. You know, they used to have these speech recognition systems and they wouldn't work at all. Now, you can talk to any of these assistants and bingo, they rarely make a mistake on your speech. And that's because of this large-scale neural processing. Also, in, uh, in uh, image processing, they've made enormous progress in image processing. And, and one of the... Um, I mean, I guess we've all experienced the one thing now is face recognition. And like Facebook uses face recognition across billions of pictures. And so face recognition uh, was allowed because of these large-scale neural processing systems. Uh, that's either good or bad, but this face processing, but it did allow it. Now, he was co-founder and leader of Google's deep learning program, including the Google Brain. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, was elected to the National Academy of Engineering. He received the ACM Infosys Foundation Award. So he's, 
he's been um, uh, awarded all kinds of things. But people, uh, you know, people uh, say this guy is a genius when it comes to programming. I mean, they've got all kinds of jokes about Jeff, about Jeff Dean. Uh, I mean, one of the jokes is his keyboard only has two keys, zero and one, <laughs> because he programs directly in binary. <laughs> Oh, another nerd one, humor. Another one is that uh, the compiler never notifies Jeff Dean of, a, of an error. Jeff Dean notifies the compiler of an error. I mean, he. There are all these jokes about him, but this guy uh, was able to to make substantial progress in these systems in the beginning, and so he is one of the primary architects of the entire Google infrastructure. Hey, now, Don. here's the thing. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. They, recognized his value, all right? Mm -hmm. Back in the day when they hired him, when he was employee number 20, they gave him 1% of Google stock. 1% of Google stock. You know what that's worth today, Jim? I know you're going to tell me right now, aren't you? $11.93 billion. Mm. That's so, crazy. So Jeff is actually in pretty good shape now, and he's <laughs> having the time of his life. You know, as far as comedy goes, Doc, don't quit your day job, okay? Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm here to help. All right. We'll be back in just a second. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 1039 HD2, northwest of uh, Washington, southwest of D.C. Here is on 1077 FM HD2 in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. 
Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I just love these virtual audiences. They're so easy to control. We don't have to clean up after them either. No. Now, this, of course, is not merely a radio show. It's a classroom of the airwaves. And we have to test whether our audience has been listening and learning. And we do that with a pop quiz. Get the right answer to the pop quiz. You'll get two tickets to fine dining, one of our dining rooms, as soon as they open after the pandemic. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Jeffrey Adgate Dean. He, of course, is one of the architects behind Google's scalable architecture. So the question is, what employee number was he hired at Google? What was his Google employee number? to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing knee-deep in a pile of undelivered Christmas gifts east of Playadale Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're dreaming of Christmas in Hawaii, but you're in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. I sanitized it personally 14 minutes ago with Clorox tabs and wipes, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Uh, thank you very much. Yes. Tesla, HP, and Oracle are all moving to Texas from Silicon Valley. Huh. There's, it's hard to get a moving van there. I mean, high taxes <laughs> and bad governance are paying the price there on Silicon Valley. Uh-huh. Now, Hewlett Packard traces its origins all the way back to 1938 when Bill Hewlett and David Packard rented a garage in Palo Alto, California, and started their Hewlett Packard company. And the success in Hewlett Packard is what ultimately brought the name Silicon Valley to the area. Now, in HP's first year, Hewlett and Packard invented their first product, the HP Model 200A audio oscillator that was used to test sound equipment. In 1972, uh, they, they, in 1966, they built their first HP computer. In 1972, they made the famous calculator, the HP 35. And I had that calculator. I loved that calculator. You know, you... you you enter in the, uh, the, there's a special, you don't enter them in from left to right. When you enter your equations in what they call reverse Polish. Oh, wow. And so, and so there's a certain technique, but it's, it's very efficient. I'll bet so, you still uh, have one. So, uh, yeah, I love the HP 35. I don't have it anymore. Now, in 2015, HP split into HP Engineering and HP Inc., which makes the, uh, the hardware. HP, no, HP Enterprise. HP Enterprise HPE is moving to Texas. Now, there have been other companies up to this point. Sign Easy moved to Texas from Silicon Valley. Question Pro moved. DZN form, uh, moved to Silicon Valley, from, moved to Texas from Silicon Valley. Now, Dell's headquarters is in Rock Rounds, Texas, near Austin. And many other tech companies are, are planning to move to Texas for tax reasons. After HP made their announcement, Tesla announced they're moving to Texas. Oracle announced they're moving to Texas from Silicon Valley. So that there's a patch of land near Austin called Silicon Hills. Really? Because it's a cluster of tech companies from Silicon Valley. It's happening more and more and more. Doc, we do not have a winner yet. Why don't you ask the question once again, please? Okay, uh, we're talking about Jeff Dean. He, of course, is a uh, programming rock star at... Uh, at Google, behind a lot of the scalable systems, what employee number was he? All right, here's the number to call. 877-936-9333. Clue, count your fingers and toes. 
Apple Silicon has arrived, finally. Apple announced a few weeks ago its first personal computers powered using chips that are more like those in the iPhone than in a typical PC. The machine is the $999 13-inch Mac Book Air, the $699 Mac Mini, and the $1299 MacBook Pro. Now, all these machines incorporate Apple silicon chips. Now, for the past 14 years, Apple's relied on Intel-made chips to power its laptops and desktop computers. They spent a decade working on this project to get their own silicon. They also spent at least a billion dollars buying half a dozen companies to help them assemble the engineering staff to make it happen. And they created the M1 chip. It's similar to the chip used in the iPhone and iPad, and it takes on Intel. Now, these first computers powered by the M1 are available for pre-order. And the amazing thing is with these M1 chips, they're more powerful and more energy efficient than the Intel chips. They actually, they're actually operating on five nanometer technology, much smaller uh, transistor size. Uh, they're they're actually more expensive to build because it's a it's it's a smaller transistor size, but the but the power requirements are much slower, and they're a faster chip, and they were able to just knock the socks off the Intel chips. People love it because they're so efficient. The battery lifetime is through the roof on these devices. Now, the reason that Intel could not compete with this type of chip is that Intel has to make a generic chip, you see, for the generic PC market. And they didn't feel like a high-end chip like this they could sell in mass. Whereas Apple wants a high-end chip to sell it for a t premium product. And so for Apple, it's much better suited to them. And they'll be able to, be able to make a laptop like they truly like. Now what they're working on is try, is try to kick out Qualcomm. Now Qualcomm makes the modem. Uh, in the current uh, Apple devices, and they want to have uh, Apple Silicon make their own modem. So they've announced a project to work on their own modem. Now, they, they basically, uh, uh, how they got jump-started this project, Apple spent a billion dollars acquiring Intel's modem business in 2019, and they're going to leverage that to build the old, their own Apple modem so they don't have to buy uh, Silicon from Qualcomm. This is a major shift in Silicon Valley, and it's going to reduce, I think, some of the uh, the power that Intel had going forward. Um, we have somebody on the phone, but we're still getting information. So one more thing here, and then we'll t we'll play the quiz, okay? Okay. All right. One more thing. Okay. ACLU is suing Department of Homeland Security over cell phone tracking data. You remember I said they can track everything. Well, it turns out that, you know, they're, you know, when you walk around with your cell phone with all that GPS data, all that tracking data is, is you know, is available from the, uh, from the cell phone companies. And guess what? They're selling it. They're selling it. So the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and U.S. Immigration and Customs of Ports basically release records about purchasing cell phone location data for tracking and for enforcement and other purposes. Now, this lawsuit follows multiple news reports earlier this year about the Trump administration buying access to commercial databases that track cell phone locations and using that data to detect people who might be entering the company illegally. You see, you just track the cell phone right across the border. <laughs> and uh, now Senate Democrats, such as privacy expert uh, Ron Wyden, 
had written a letter to DHS asking for more information. It'll be interesting to see how this lawsuit shakes out and whether the government has the right to that use that data, because this is location data that they get without a warrant. But it also is a warning call. Anybody can buy that data. Yep, All right, Doc. We're going to play the game here. Let's go to line one. And this is Janet. I think Janet's a new caller. Janet, are you there? Yes. Yes. Uh, have you called us before? Well, I called last week, but I didn't get a chance ah. to uh, okay. play. Okay. Yeah, All right. We got it. We got uh, we, early in the show. I talked about uh, Jeffrey Adgate Dean, one of the programming rock stars at Google. What employee number was he? He was number 20. That is correct. That is Excellent correct. job, Janet. Hang on a second. We'll send you back to Andrew. Thank you for listening, and thanks for playing the pop quiz here on Tech Talk Radio. We're heard on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and southwest of Washington now on uh, Washington now on 107.7 FM HD2. And Loudoun County, County, listen to us on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. You're getting a Canon WD-40 for, uh, for Christmas for me. Yes, we need to get something like that. Today, uh, I was thinking about all of this AI stuff, especially Jeff Dean and the work they're doing there. And I started thinking about the ethics of artificial intelligence. And it's, uh, there are some interesting issues with that. These all came to a head when Timnit Gebru was fired as uh, as a member of Google's ethical AI team. She was fired a couple of weeks ago, and it just raised a big stink in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the AI community. She was monitoring some ethical questions regarding AI, and she published a paper called The Dangers of Stochastic Parrots. Huh? Can language models be too big? But stochastic parrots, I mean, they, they model the thing on data, statistically, and they pair it back whatever the data says. And okay. if there are biases in the data, guess what? The model is biased. 
So the first thing she did, she did groundbreaking work on uh, a paper that showed facial recognition is less accurate when identifying women and also less accurate when identifying people of color. And that has a huge impact on a lot of these uh, facial recognition applications that are out there. She submitted the publication, The Dangers of Stochastic Parrots, Can Language Models Be Too Big? And Google requested that she withdraw it. And she refused. And she said, I'm not going to do it. And they fired her. And now, this is the issue with these statistical models, and this is where we get the ethics. Normally, if you've got software, you can analyze, are there biases, there are rules that are set up. We don't even understand how these models work. They just basically do unsupervised learning on massive data sets. And we've got to get ethical control over this. Because you can imagine if AI is used for job hiring, it could be biased. These, these could be biased models, and we wouldn't even know it. Right. So I think we've got to get a handle on it, and I think this is going to be one of the big issues going forward. The reason Google does not like this particular paper, they have huge big data applications that they're planning to make money on in the future, and this is a big growth area for the company, and they don't like people throwing you know, water on their fire. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, it'll be interesting thing to see how this plays out. Now, let's talk about finding life in other places in the universe. Yes. As soon as you find your place. Yes, on I've the got outline. it here. <laughs> Looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. Astronomer Erman Cairns at University of Manchester has de developed an approach for looking for intelligent extraterrestrial beings on other planets that involve using game theory. I remember when I, I used to do game theory. You, you basically try to model the system to give you the highest probability of winning. Now, the current approach is to look for intelligent life on other planets uh, uh, by, by looking for signals from space. So we have scanned space for the last you know 20 years the SETI project is doing that, looking for intelligent signals from space. Now, the other method involves looking for planets that may be inhabitable, exoplanets that have the same atmosphere or features as Earth. These are the two things that we've been doing. Now, Karen suggests that actually there, that if you apply game theory, you're going to have a different approach. He says, here's the thing. If you are... Uh, a civilization in the universe, you may not want to advertise yourself because there could be some aliens out there that would, that would come in and destroy your civilization. So you want to keep it mum. So you don't advertise yourself, but you look for others. So given that scenario, you're actually never going to find anybody. So he said, this is what we should do. We should use the, the, um, the project where we try to locate exoplanets that most likely will have life. Then according to game theory, if you have two planets, if we find another planet that's Earth-like, then we decide, is Earth more visible to them or are they more visible to us? And according to game theory, the most visible civilization should be the one who actually sends out the signal. 
So he said, based on that analysis, there's an exoplanet, K2-155D. It looks very promising, and we should send signals to K2-155D, and they should be, you know, uh, intelligence signals of something. So it should be something very basic that you send to them, some very simple frequency or something, so they can understand it. So that's really what we what we are looking at using game theory to find things on other planets. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure you'll be tuned into the NASA channel to uh, oh, await the answer. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now let's go to. Uh, let me just find something here. Okay. Uh, uh, net neutrality is back with a Biden win. It looks like Joe Biden is, uh, you know, he's going to change the, uh, he's basically going to change the, uh, the, uh, he's going to change the look of the, uh, of the uh, Federal Communication Commission. Tom, Tom Wheeler is, is dropping down. Do you remember the FCC under Donald Trump got rid of net neutrality? Right. Now, and they, uh, they, they, you know, net neutrality says that carriers, they must actually, um, you know, they, they cannot uh, limit any traffic on the network to favor themselves. They have to treat everybody equally. And uh, Biden wants to tr treat uh, broadband as a utility that, that, that could be managed by the FCC. Um, according to uh, the Republicans, if you do that, you will eliminate you will eliminate innovation on the part of the carriers. And according to uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, you must do that. And so this has been the great debate. So we can expect to see the whole net neutrality debate raising its ugly head over the next few days. Now, right. it's, going to, it's going to be a while because the Republicans are rushing through a nomination to the commission. Uh, Tom Wheeler, the chair, is resigning. No, you mean Ajit Pai? Yeah, he's yeah. The guy. He's, RJ Pai yeah. is resigning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, not Tom Wheel. Yeah, is resigning, and that means it'll be a two-two matchup on the uh, on the system. Yep. And so there we go. listen. Uh, I think all of our time is up. It listen, is. we love having your uh, we we love having your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you right away. And go to the Stratford University website www.stratford.edu and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.